I believe everyone has a story to share. I'm on a journey to discover the magic inside each person's story. Each week, I will introduce you to guests where I will dig deep and uncover the beautiful miracles from life and experiences to inspire and encourage you to live life to the fullest. My goal is to give each guest a platform to share their lives with the world in hopes that someone will be inspired to take action and live life with passion and purpose. Welcome to the Uncover Your Magic podcast with me, Ashley Goner. Are you ready? Here we go. Welcome back to Uncover Your Magic. Today you get to meet Christina Mand Lacchiani. And if the last name sounds familiar, Lacchiani, her ex-husband is Vishen Lacchiani. They are the co-founders of Mind Valley. And if you're listening to this podcast, I am sure you know Mind Valley. It has actually been a part of my transformational journey and spirituality since probably, gosh, the inception of it. It was 19 years. I probably have been listening to Mind Valley or at some point following Vision and uh, Christina's venture. But she's from Estonia and you will just adore her. She just wrote a book called Flossom, and which is why we are here to talk about. And she's, you know, I think when you, when I meet people that write books and really take the time, and I know she's a mother and, you know, that takes a lot of time. And just to, you know, put that intention out there that you do finish a book and you are dedicated to the completion of a book. I mean, it's just amazing. And just after reading her book, it was, oh, so good. You're going to love all the little nuggets that she brings out that we talk about in this interview. Let me give you a little bit of background about Christina. She's an entrepreneur, writer, speaker, philanthropist, and mother. She's been engaging in the personal transformation industry for over 19 years, collaborating and playing with leading thinkers and teachers in consciousness, relationships, human performance, and life optimization. She's also, she also launched the Mind Valley Russian. So she's, she's just like, and she has, she's also the author of Live by Your Own Rules, a 30 day optimal learning quest to, uh, designed to transform your identity, understand and accept the dimensions of your authentic self so that you can live an extraordinary life and make happiness a regular practice. But before I bring her on, I want to just say hello and we just returned back from our trip to Italy and it was amazing and I put all our pictures up on Instagram. So if you wanted to check that out, every moment was perfect and the time together was precious and when you're on those trips every moment I just savor it and I'm always present and to be together for what nine eight or nine days in a foreign country and learning and exploring and learning you know hearing language that we don't understand and eating food that you know that we had never eaten before and just Oh, just discovering places that had so much history, so rich in history. And then we went to the Amalfi Coast and saw Sorrento and Positano. And I will definitely go back there. I That was a dream. 
going up those streets and looking out at the water and the boats and and all the lemons and I'll never look at lemons the same. And yeah, I just cherish that and hope everyone is enjoying their summer. And I am, I keep enrolling these amazing children in my classes. I even just enrolled an eight-year-old and I realized that this mother, you know, there's either proactive mothers or mothers that wait too long and it's almost too late. And when I say too late, meaning the limiting beliefs are, you know, really ingrained or they've been depressed. And, you know, I have other students that, you know, really are still struggling from being in quarantine and the COVID thing. And, oh, it just breaks my heart when I start seeing the the ramifications of what happened in 2020 for those two years. And these kids were you know, with masks on and lockdown and had to do everything online. And now some of them are social, really having a hard time being social and having the confidence. And, oh, I just, it makes me so happy to know that these parents care enough to really let me guide these kids and teach them the tools that I really believe are so important. And I really know that because I'm a witness to my two girls and I see Paige going into her senior year, so ready, so ready with the, she, her values are so strong. And I, it's just so fun to watch as they get older, you know, with all the different friendships and who they pick as friends and, and what, why they understand why they pick their friends because they value, their values align. And it's just a beautiful as a parent to watch. And I couldn't be prouder. I'm getting ready to take Presley to another pageant in Georgia in a, in a week. And I look forward to that. And then Paige is giving up her crown for Miss California from Nam on the end of that trip. So a lot going on in this family, but all fun and enjoying everything. And finally, the sun came out in San Diego. But I know you're going to love this interview with Christina and remember to share it and write a review or message me. But um, it's just the podcast is growing and I'm really grateful for every one of you that listen to this every week. It means the world to me. And you know how much it means when I hear you or read your messages. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So without further ado, let's bring this beautiful Christina Man Lachiani on the show. Welcome, Christina. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to see you again. Well, you know, it's like I've been in personal development for, you know, I'm older than you, but, you know, since in my 20s, right? I've always been that kind of person. So Mind Valley has always been part of that in my head, right? So when I had knew I had the pleasure to interview you. It was almost like I was interviewing a celebrity or someone that I looked up to, a mentor, a guru, you know, all those things that, you know, just someone that I, through my life for the last 20 years, probably Mind Valley. So sitting here with you, and I know we sat when I, you interviewed me months ago. So I got to meet you then, but seeing what someone does in their life and where, where their childhood you know, we both are parents and have raised these children and mine are a little bit older than yours. Mine are 14 and 17, but I'm listening to you and, you know, you've just now are this book 
Becoming Flossom is coming out right now. And I know it's been this like baby to you that you've been trying ready to birth. And I admire, it's like I, I look and see and I've been learning about you because I love learning about people before I bring them on of just, you know, what it takes to write a book, first of all, but what it takes to get to the place where you actually know when you're going to, you always <laughs> like you have a dream. I want to write a book one day, but then yeah. it really comes real. And you have the the title and you create those chapters. And what am I going to, what's my point? And why am I writing that? What is my why? And so Mm -hmm. I would love for you to start with, I need to understand why, like why this book, why Flossom, why thinking of your, like marrying, you know, your marriage and all that stuff. I would love for you to explain kind of how you were raised too in Russia. And I would just learn something neat about you too, was you were in Russia, they do the Olympics, they train the kids when they're like four or five years old for gymnasts. And that, that's really interesting. Anyway, so, so, I, so I'll try to, I'll try to give, uh, give, give answers, but not probably in very chronological order because then yeah, I would we're good. start with Soviet Union. I will say that from the beginning, I, uh, I never lived in Russia. I lived in Soviet Union and I know that for the okay. outside world, it's, the same, but I've lived in Estonian. I mean, in the part of the Soviet Union, which is Estonia, which, 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 well, for, for us, from this point of view, it's an important distinction, but right. I do speak Russian and I, I, did, I was brought up in the Soviet system. So, so I, I get it. Now, uh, when it comes to the book, uh, I think because you've been in person growth for such a long time, you probably also have that feeling that, you know, when everybody around you has been writing books or written a book and, and half of the p- people that you know are best-selling authors, you kind of take it for granted. You never even question, am I going to write the book? You just know you will write a book sooner or later. It's like, you know, if you're born to a family of entrepreneurs, you know that you'll grow up right. to be in business. And I think that has always been a thought in the back of my mind. And I absolutely agree with you that the biggest question that I had was, so what do I have to say? Because right. that's probably the scariest question. There are so many books out there. And especially if you take the whole history of humankind, I feel that somehow book is such a serious format that people normally normally are stumbling behind this idea. What am I going to say? What do I have to say? So in my case, I was ready to write the book uh, when my message had matured. It's like with babies. Like when you're pregnant with a baby, you kind of, you know that you're pregnant, but you don't feel it in the beginning. But then when the baby's ready, you can't keep it and you have to deliver it. So (laughs) that was the point because uh, being in business for such a long time, I heard that phrase over and over again, you should write a book. It's good for your business. It's part of a business model. Write a book, write a book, write a book. But I'm partially very uh, obstinate and partially pathologically honest. So for me, that wasn't an argument enough. I had to feel that it's it's that baby that I can't hold inside and it's ready to be birthed. And that's that's the point when I wrote the book. Now, I wrote it a little bit reverse to uh, how they are written in personal growth, but I know that it's it's quite a common technique. I wrote a book and then an intro and then the title came. <laughs> so oh, the title oh, really? was the last oh, thing cool. to come. Yeah, I only knew oh. in... In, in vague lines that I was going to write the book about how to find your path back to you, because that was the question. So I started writing a book with a question in my mind. How did I get lost? What happened? Why did I get lost? How do I find myself back? And then as I wrote the book, when it was finished, then I understood what it was about. It might come a little bit from my background in, um, I was, um, 
an artist as a, as a child, I actually went to an art school. And I know that it's with artists, sometimes so strange, you kind of, you create something. And then, you know, we had these uh, appraisals every year. So we would hang all our art through the year on the wall. And then all those teachers, the commission of teachers would walk by and look at your art and then they will say what they think. And it was the funnest thing because they would look at, at things that I just, I just created and they would say, oh, and here she felt like this and she wanted to say this. And I was like, yeah, I guess that's what I wanted to say. But you're mm-hmm. not, you, you don't put it into words when you are in the process of creating it. So the same with the book, it was the easiest part of the whole journey because I'm a writer by nature. And for me, that was just the form of self-expression. So I had a question in my mind and I sat down and I just wrote. And then later when it was all finished, that's when I started to find the meaning in that and give it a title and give it an intro and, and, uh, and I think it took another half a year for me to understand that my book was about self-love. So I listened to you speak and I'm getting this is your why for this book is you were lost. You were trying to be someone you weren't. I'm just guessing. I'm just going by what I'm getting and why the self-love, like doing things that weren't in alignment with your true self. I mean, I'm tr- so w- what brought you to that place? Why do you feel like you were lost? Where, show me that trail. The path uh, to hell is, uh, is laid, uh, oh, God, I'm butchering the most famous quote out there. The path <laughs> to hell is paved with good intentions. I was going for uh, success and trying to be a good girl. I did all the right things. And I wouldn't say that I was, you know how we are lost. It's not like uh, we're lost because we're going um, in the opposite direction. We're usually lost because we are we can't find the the path between three trees in the forest. So I was somewhere near the path, but just not quite. So uh, my being lost wasn't that I did everything wrong, but somehow the things that I did didn't feel right. Now I do very similar things right now, but they don't feel the same way anymore. So uh, I have been in this industry for 20 years and I started as an entrepreneur and a marketer. I'm still in the industry. I'm still in the company. I'm just doing a different thing. I suddenly realized that, in fact, I'm a writer. And, you know, part of what I did before had to do with writing. I was really good at writing emails. <laughs> I enjoyed doing that. It was genuine yeah. communication. And I, I was pretty good at that. So the element of what I'm doing right now was there. It's just that I was focusing on somewhat wrong things. I was focusing on conversions. You know, can I write a really converting emails? And I did some spectacular numbers because, you know, perfectionists, ambitious people, we, of course, we're good at whatever we apply ourselves to. And you can, that, that, that's the scary thing. You can do a very, a thing which is very similar to what you're men, meant to do. You can do it really well. You can really achieve high success and still feel you know, like a fraud or unfulfilled. Hmm. And that's, that's what I called lost. And again, when I started writing the book, I didn't really know that. It it was triggered with this um, experience that I had. I I was traveling and I came home, uh, came back to, to the office after a few months of traveling. And a friend of mine said, I missed you. And I blurted out without thinking, I missed me too. Hmm. And then when I blurted it out, it just was such a shocking experience to me because I, I, I stood there and I was thinking, did I just say I missed me too? What I mean? And that's, that's somehow um, it, it happened at, at 40. And then of course I, I, I didn't sit down to write a book immediately, but that, that was the same question that I was trying to answer when I sat down to write the book a few years afterwards. 
Right. So you were married to your husband. You co-founded Mind Valley. Were you during this trail of that's leading you to now? Were in the moment? Did you not feel the authentic you? Or were you just like going through the motions? Were you raised like with the perfection and you're just gonna try to be this best person regardless of Anything that, you know, I'm going to find the perfect husband. We're going to get married. We're going to find this business. We're going to create this together. I think I had a good husband. <laughs> I don't know if he was perfect, but I don't know if anybody is perfect for that matter. That's the interesting thing. It's not that I felt inauthentic. I don't think any one of us feels inauthentic if we ask. And and that's a funny thing because in the nature of delusion is that we are never aware of it. Because the moment we become aware of delusion, it stops being delusion. So, and uh, being authentic is being true to yourself. So the opposite of it is actually being delusional or being lost or being, being in the fog. So how I found out that something was wrong was not really that I felt inauthentic. And I guess, I guess nobody likes to feel inauthentic. It was when, uh, when I judged myself for what I was feeling or I judged myself as wrong in something. So a very simple example is my own life. At the age of 40, I thought that I had made it. And a lot of people said that uh, they found me inspirational. I had husband, two children, business, the work that I enjoyed, traveled the world, you know, that perfect facade, which is so pleasant to show on Instagram. And with all of that, I felt discontent. And sometimes I felt like crying. And sometimes I didn't even know why I felt like that or frustrated or angry or lashing out at people or grumpy. And, and which would have been half the problem. The real problem was that I really felt ashamed for not feeling happy. I was feeling uh, not even ashamed, but guilty. How dare you not feel happy? Don't you have everything that other people dream of? So what's wrong with you? And that was, which kind of triggered me on this path of trying to find out what's going on. Why do I feel this way? Of course, now that I've realized that I had forgotten at that time what it meant to be true to myself, I guess. Now I can see that that those um the that that the problem was that I actually denied myself my my true experience. I denied myself the right to be what I am, to feel what I am, to ask myself, why am I feeling this way? To actually sit with myself and with this discomfort. So, but that's probably a, a different conversation. It's, it's now going down the rabbit hole. But right now I can say that that cognitive dissonance is in essence the red flag that you are probably forgetting who you are. Right. So when you were realizing that moment, did you, you were sitting there questioning, it's like I always say, you've got to ask yourself these questions. I mean, that, it's, it's really about the questions you ask yourself, I think, in life. And were you asking, like in a marriage, I mean, it's that's a big deal to say, I want a divorce. But, you know, you have two children, you know, in your heart, like, I'm just not being this. What are you saying to yourself during this time when you really make that decision? I don't normally go very deep into this uh, experience because um, I don't think I've given it enough time to 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 understand. And yes, it was a scary decision. And it's a little easier, for example, for me to say that uh, I divorced from my <laughs> business partner years before that, when it was a painful separation, or I uh, took a sabbatical from work because uh, my, my work that I enjoyed and that I was good at felt wrong to me. And yes, at some point I did feel unhappy in the marriage and uh, it was scary to admit. 
because why would I? I have a good husband and we have good relationships and, and am I planning to find someone else? We are both single right now, years down the road. So it wasn't about a better option. It was about, you know, that separation was purely the relationship between me and him and had nothing else involved in that, in that decision. So it, it is about being true to, to what you feel. Now, it doesn't mean that I never regret what I do <laughs> or that I don't, don't wonder if I should have uh, taken a different decision, but I'm not afraid of mistakes. Right. It's okay. What I'm afraid of is betraying my feelings. Is shaming myself for what I am, for what I feel. That was something which was unbearable. I just couldn't bear to try to be something which I'm not. That was right. just exhausting. Right. You know, it just hits me because I, you know, raising kids and having the, you know, growing up in my childhood and looking back, you made me reflect on my life and who was, what are you going to be? What do, what do you like? You know, what are you going to do in college? Are you going to grow? All the things that are these questions that, you know, are just thrown at you, especially, you know, when my older daughter's going to graduate from high school next year and those are happening now. And it's, there was something in what I read, do your dreams really belong to you? Does your life belong to you? And when you're raising the family, I'm, as a mom, I'm like, I need to, you know, I'm always about like, what do you love and things that interest you? And then when they do find something that interests you, like, you know, what would that look like? You know, trying to let them make their own path. But with you, like, what does that mean to you? Like, cause you feel like, you know, do your dreams belong to you? Like were all these people <laughs> influencing you? They do belong to me, but even the previous dreams belong to me. It wasn't that somebody insisted that I have to choose the path that I uh, walked. It was my choice. And, and that's, uh, that's the unpleasant thing that we, we say that we are on this path and I'm lost and I'm on this path because somebody had forced me to do that. My family expected me, you know, why do I stay in a career that I don't like? Oh, because I have obligations. I have to pay the, the loan and, uh, you know, I, I have to be responsible. I have a family. So we, we always have that story around why we make the choices that we make or why we stay in the choices that we have made uh, before. But I do insist that for most of us, we have, it, it is our choice. It's not forced on us. We just, you know, the, the society can expect anything they want from us that becomes our own boundary and our own uh, cage the moment we subscribe to that. And Yes, I am absolutely aware that not every society is free. And I have lived 16 years in uh, Malaysia, uh, which is a pretty conservative society, Asian society. I've lived in uh, uh, Soviet Union 14, 14 years, like not even comparable. It's like North Korea, uh, if you want to have any wow. <laughs> any analogy. So I understand. But, you know, if you've read uh, Viktor Frankl's uh, most famous book, um, Man's Search, yeah, for, Search meaning, for Meaning, yeah. he's... He is writing about people who were in concentrate, Nazi concentration camps. And one of the messages that he has there is that even in those circumstances, you still have a choice, right. which is scary to understand, but it is true. We mm -hmm. still have a choice. We always have a choice. And very often when we say that somebody expects something from us, it's still our choice because we chose to, to go down that path and to subscribe to that expectation. Because whether we like it or not, but most of the world don't care, doesn't care what 
what we do with our lives. They will mm-hmm. have an opinion, but that doesn't mean they care or right. that they will force you. Yes, uh, if you are a woman in Iran, probably this, uh, the, you know, the, the government will force you to wear a headscarf. I get it. But sometimes we we get lost behind uh, behind the um, behind the circumstances of of what it is. Yes, you might be forced to kneel down, but you can still choose to leave your dignity intact, or to stay true to yourself, or not to lie, or not to betray. Even if you are in a uh, enslaved position, and now of course we have to come back to to the realities of most of the people who probably watch or listen to that. We live in affluent democratic countries. We have more, even more choices, many more choices. So, do my dreams belong to me? They've always belonged to me. It's just that I've become a little bit more selective what I what I choose for myself. And the other thing is that because they belong to me, doesn't mean that I have to marry them once and for all, I right. can make a mistake and I can change. And that's yeah. fine too. Exactly. I think what comes to me right now is identity and realizing, I, I, I think I'm thinking of you like I'm a, I'm a wife, I'm a mom, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm a business owner, I'm a speaker, I'm an author, all these labels that we wake up to every morning and have to fill, right? And then what, like, what if one of those labels, what if I take one away? What will that do? What is your take on that, like identity? I sometimes feel like you get stuck on your your decisions or your the choices that you do make because you have this rigid identity instead of like, taking those bricks down and, and putting them away and waking up and saying, who am I? Like, what mm-hmm. do I get to do today? Maybe we'll do something all new, you know? What would you say on that? So I like the... In the- in social psychology, there's the theory, no, sorry, in psychology, there's a theory of social roles, which I think it, uh, explains it very, very beautifully. We, we play different social roles, which is natural because, you know, we're not just robots who do one function. Right. Uh, and of course, we, we adjust our behaviors and our expressions depending on social roles. A very simple example is if you come from a holiday with your girlfriends, the way you uh, tell about it to your children and to your husband and to your other girlfriends who are not on the holiday would be very different because we have to adjust our expression to the circumstances. This is uh, natural. This is healthy. Not doing that is actually a psychological disorder. So what that means is that our expression of ourselves changes depending on where we are in uh, throughout the day or in our life, in our social circumstances. Now, sometimes those social roles can be at odds with each other. And that is when the problems start brewing. For example, if you're a mother and an entrepreneur, And sometimes you have to prioritize one social role over the other. For example, if you have to work like right now, my kids are going to sleep and an entrepreneur in me or an author in me took priority. So rather than singing my daughter to sleep like she usually likes to do, I'm sitting here and doing an interview. So what we do normally when our social uh, roles are at odds is that we naturally tend to prioritize the social role, which is more valued by society. Hmm. which is why very often would naturally prioritize being in, uh, an entrepreneur over being a parent. For men, it's particularly pronounced, actually. For women, right. it's a little more complicated. Or if you're a woman leader, these our expressions as a woman and our expressions as a leader, the way society sees us is very contradictory 
very often when you're being feminine, and, and I'm talking in stereotypes right now, society doesn't think these are good qualities of a leader. So because leaders are more valued by society, I'm really sad to say that than women. Mm-hmm. Very often women, women have to suppress their feminine expressions to be considered good leaders. So this is what happens to us when our social roles are at odds and we have to choose one of the, uh, over the other. Now, the true problem starts brewing when, you know, when the role that we de- deprioritized is, uh, is creating that feeling of guilt or shame. Mm-hmm. Or if we, uh, if we are so, we feel so bad about that role that we start suppressing it completely. Or if we are so enamored with a social role which is highly valued that we are dismissing other social roles. So those conflicts in themselves, they are natural, but our reaction to those conflicts is where the problem happens. So let's say if I start feeling guilty about deprioritizing myself as a mother, I'm tempted to start, you know, criticizing myself, uh, digging deeper, adding more, you know, when, when, when you feel guilty about something and you, you start criticizing yourself for that, you kind of add uh, another stab at a wound, which is already right. there, mm-hmm. rather than reconciling yourself to what had happened or finding the ways not to be in that situation again, or finding, finding some kind of solution to that. Or if you are so enamored with your role as, a, as an influencer and a celebrity that you sometimes start dismissing your friends, Mm-hmm. Or you are a boss and you have to fire your friend. You know, all those social roles, when they get into conflict, that's when the true problem starts brewing. And, and here, here is the place where we need to remember what our values are and who we are. Because yeah. that's, that's the way out. Right. You know, I was listening to you talk about the, we've been talking about perfectionism, but that's always on the other side of perfectionism is the fear of failure. And I, you know, I loved, you know, when I think of that and I think of, I also think of my role of what I do in my life, you know, thinking of being a mom and all the things that we were just talking about having this podcast, you know, trying to be perfect. And, and I'm, I think the older I get, the more I, and have pushed past the fear and realize it doesn't matter if you have to be perfect, but for me to be a mom and trying to teach that to my daughters, like you don't, it's all just take that, you know, take, go through that fear, just do it. And then there's that magic, but we explain, cause you talk about perfectionism a lot in this, in your new book and how, and I love the fact that, you know, when you see an evolution of somebody and you're reading this, you know, like watching It's like almost like you can, you take a deep breath and you're like, oh, she's, you know, we don't need to be perfect. (laughs) We we love ourselves. And I'm always all about self-love too. And I, I, that's part of it too. I mean, all, I think you're right. The whole thing about everything that we're talking about comes to self-love. That's the basis of love everything. And now I want to say a scary thing about perfectionism. We very often, perfectionism is just an aspiration. And it is not attainable. And that's the scary thing about being so attached to that aspiration or to be obsessed with perfectionism, because you don't realize one very simple thing. People can see through your mask or through your uh, facade. Mm-hmm. So while you think that you're putting up the, uh, the, the picture of perfection, in reality, everybody knows 
your quirks and your flaws and your dragons are there. Oh, yeah. The dragons, yes. But, uh, and, and that's why perfectionists are not very uh, popular people. It's usually when they, they, when, when they show the real, the right. real humanness. When, when people like think of Hermione, because in my book, I, I call it Hermione syndrome. But if you've seen, uh, of course, because I have children, I've seen all the Harry Potter movies. Harry Potter, very, right. In the very beginning of, uh, of uh, well, it's not just movies, the books is the same story. In the very beginning, Hermione comes across as this naughty, annoying person. And uh, her then later, her best friends, initially, they don't like her. It's when she shows some signs of humanity, when, when you warm up to her and you start liking her as a character. Right. But who loves the picture of perfection? Does it even exist? It's not natural. Perfection is just not natural. It's not in the essence of nature. Nature is all about irregularity. It's about mm. some kind of making a step away from perfection. That's how the evolution happened when things mutated and were not normal. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's so true. It's the being authentic and vulnerable. And those words are a lot. You speak about those words a lot too. And you were referencing a quote from Brene Brown because she always talks about vulnerability. And it, it may, it, you know, it's like being vulnerable to me, like, you know, being authentic. Those words, there's like, so those are words we hear a lot today. Are those, you know, be authentic. I mean, social media, just being like, you watch, you can scroll down and see the perfection. <laughs> like, do you really stay on that? Or, I mean, you know, I like to tell the girls, like, you know, what you're putting yourself out there, you know, what are you portraying? Like, be real. Like, they just want to see love in your eyes. They just want to feel that connection. But, you know, when they, when you live in this world of social media and the perfection, now be vulnerable, now be authentic, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's a lot of pressure on us to be a certain way. And uh, it might be tempting to to think that after after I made this rant against perfectionism, that people still know that you're real, even if you don't show it. You might expect me to say that you actually have to be vulnerable. Well, probably to a degree, yes. You have to be vulnerable if you need to, if you want to create strong human connections. And that's exactly what Brené Brown is saying, that vulnerability is a necessary uh, component for you to create those strong human connections. And human connections are absolutely necessary for you to be happy. So it is a very valuable skill. But uh, do I insist that you have to be vulnerable? I don't think so. It depends on, uh, you know, your your level of comfort. And different people have different um, circumstances where they become vulnerable. I mean, I, I think it's a valuable skill. Do I think everybody needs to do that? That's a choice. I don't even think everybody needs to do personal growth and transformation. I right. think it would be good if people learn to love themselves. But not everybody probably is there. Not everybody probably is, is, is ready for that. So there is definitely this tendency in our industry to force people into a certain path. And to we, we do have that uh, illusion that I know best what's good for somebody else. And if I know that this is good, I'm going to force it on you because that's for your own good. And that's what we do with authenticity and vulnerability. We sometimes force it down, down other people's throats when they're not ready. Mm -hmm. Or maybe uh, we tell them how to be vulnerable or how to be authentic. When How do we even know that? Authenticity exactly. is, if you look into anthropology, and that's the only scientific explanation of authenticity, is to be true to yourself. It's only about you and yourself. Who else knows what it means to be authentic 
for you. Nobody does. And I've heard, I've, I've been asked that, you know, since I talk about authenticity, people sometimes talk, turn to me as, as an authority and tell me, tell that person they need to be authentic. How do I know? Maybe that's, that's what it means, authentic for them. Right. Yeah. I, you know, it's like you said something like you can't fix anybody, you know, you, you can't come out in this, in a relationship, let's say for an example, and fix your partner. That's not what we're here to do. We're here oh, to this is, But this is so delicious, isn't it? To try to fix people around us. <laughs> yeah. Let me tell you something. You better change. <laughs> no, I mean, I thank God that I've figured that out in my life, but you know, that's a lot of pressure. And uh, I, I mean, um, it's not just a lot of pressure. It's also unfair because we take upon ourselves uh, the role of judging what is good for someone else without knowing all the whole story. Even if it's, even if it's someone that we love and we know really well, of course, with children, it's a little bit more complicated because there is responsibility that we have for the children until they're, you know, full aged and can take their own responsibilities. But that exception aside, I I actually, I really doubt that I even, I mean, my parents, for example, are smoking and I, I really dislike that habit that they have. And I know it's bad for their health. Right. But I've also battled for years trying to fix it and it's not working. So I guess they're having a journey that I just can't understand. And I guess my, right. my fate is to, to witness that journey and love them nevertheless whether right. they're ready to do as I think is good for them or not. Right. Yeah. It's their journey. That's how I always say that. It's, all, it's your journey. Not, you know, I, I don't judge. And I think when you realize that, you know, everyone's on this planet at this time to learn their own lessons in their own way. And to, I mean, the only thing that I could say by an example is show how much you love yourself, <laughs> be that beacon of love that you you exude the love. I mean, it's, it's a, after listening and reading to you, reading your book, you know, you're, you even have a program. If you buy the book, you have a 10 day self-love program. Yeah. Yeah, And And I, that offer is not up anymore, by the way, but the program is there. (laughs) Yeah. But I just, you know, I was looking at it and looking at the, you know, 10 day topics and, you know, I always ask my clients, when's the last time you said you loved yourself? I mean, I would probably, it's just like a blank stare or when, you know, you talk about self-care versus self-love. Will you just, will you give that description? So the very easy analogy would be that when a child is born, the child requires care. And I I say sometimes maintenance. (laughs) As in, you need to feed the child, you need to dress the child, wash the child, walk the child, entertain the child, soothe the child. You know, all those things that the child needs to to, to grow and thrive. Not thrive so much, but grow at least and and, and be healthy. Now, we all know that if uh, if that child's parents are too busy for, uh, for, for the child and they are not present at work, they don't have time for the child, usually the child would grow up wounded in some way. We we understand that for a child to grow up into a healthy, happy human being, they need love and connection. We all know that. It's something, it's something intuitive that we feel. Mm-hmm. Now that's the difference between self-love and self-care. Self-care is a maintenance program. It's how you take care of the child. Self-love is a relationship. 
And relationship is not tangible. And that's why it's so hard to understand because self-care is by nature ritualistic. Yes, you can care about your well, emotional well-being and your mind, but it is there are rituals which make sure that you are fine. It's like walking the child, soothing the child, but the true love is non-ritualistic. It's, mm-hmm. it's something which is so intangible, but we understand what it is. It's the connection. It's the commitment. It's being present. It's being compassionate. There's no ritual behind it. It's always there. It's like the, you know, it's like the, <laughs> the, the soundtrack to your life. And that's, and that's the difference between the two. The self-care is necessary for you to survive. Like, as I say, I charge, if, if you have a picture, I charge this phone, this device, because if I don't charge it, it will die. But I don't charge it out of love. Right. Love is connection. It's that thing that, that sustains you, that makes you actually, that, that helps you thrive. So because it's um, not tangible sometimes and uh, a little bit hard to explain, it's tempting to focus on self-care thinking that I'll take care of myself. That means that I love myself. But that causality goes goes only one way. Yes, if you love yourself, most likely you're going to take care of yourself. But the fact that you take care of yourself does not mean that you love yourself. Right. And that's not a pleasant pill to swallow. Very often, you know, very often because I don't understand how to be there present for myself, I'll go and I'll do another self-care ritual because this is something that I understand. But how can I give myself love when I failed, when I'm blushing, when I feel worse than uh, worthy? This is so hard to understand. So I'd rather do a ritual which I understand. That's why we very often, we often replace the the self-love with self-care because self-care is just uh, easier to grasp. And, you know, it's also an explanation. If you, if you look into the core of how it happens, it's also the explanation why we are so set on going for success and working hard because working hard is something which we understand. We don't understand the stroke of genius, which requires some kind of miraculous things to happen. We don't understand how to be successful while being happy or doing something what you love because we think it's this inexplicable phenomenon. So because we don't like inexplicable phenomenon, we do things which we know how to do. And what we humans know very well how to do is how to put more hours or more effort or more time into something. Right. And we very often replace something so deep and profound with just being this little hamster in the hamster's wheel, just running harder, running harder. Mm-hmm. And... um this problem is actually much deeper than uh, I, I dare to touch upon it in my book because because sometimes the very good intentions become the slippery slope that take us further away from what we need. Right. Oh, so true. That whole thing you just said, it just spoke to me. It's when you explain, and I'm just going to say it because your words are so beautifully expressed. Um, but when I what I got from that, um, Christina, was the self-care, like meditate and, you know, get up every morning and do your thing. And then one day I don't. And then it's like, oh gosh, I'm terrible. Or I get go to my Pilates class. I missed those two days. Oh, you know, it's like these, it was a wake up call to me thinking, gosh, that's just self-care. It has nothing. It's like self-love. Like, you know, I, you, people equate that to their work there. Right. Is that yeah. a good way of explaining it? It, it? it is a good way. And you know, there is another undercurrent 
first of all, the way we punish ourselves for failing our self-care is sometimes so out of proportion. And I've seen people who actually, they have their self-care rituals so lined up and perfected that if they make a step aside, it's actually the, the damage is so big to their well-being. It's like, you know, my, my doctor once said, you know, that glass of wine that you have makes less damage to your body than the stress that you're feeling about having it. Right. I heard you say I, that. I was like, oh, okay, good. <laughs> yeah. Because, be, be, and, and we're forgetting that. Now, that is something which we see on the surface. There's another thing which is a little bit under the surface is that sometimes we are so stuck on those rituals that we start forgetting their essence. Like one of the most uh, commonly uh, praised um, practices in personal growth is uh, gratitude, which if practiced, it's proved to increase your well-being and, you know, your your levels of happiness and, and things like that. But what I've also noticed that uh, people who practice gratitude for a really long time, it becomes ritualistic. It becomes mm-hmm. like ticking the boxes. But the, the point of, uh, of practicing gratitude is first in feeling that feeling, that emotion of gratitude for a moment, because it's such a positive, uplifting emotion. So when you're actually grateful, think of, for example, if you've been sick and you became better and you came outside and you took that first breath of fresh air, knowing that you're well again, mm-hmm. how it feels this is the gratitude. This is the emotion. And when right. you're sitting in your meditation and ticking off the boxes, it's like comparing, I don't know, sorry, I'll bring the, up the wine analogy again, the, the <laughs> aroma of wine with just plain water, which I know water is healthy, but, but still, it's such a huge difference. The other thing is, of course, uh, you know, focusing your attention on things which matter and away from things which may be uh, uh, destructive to you. Uh, analogy for that would be, you know, when a year ago a war started on our border, I live in Estonia, I fe- we felt scared because uh, the president of our neighboring co- country insisted on, on uh, talking about nuclear weapons. And I had just moved back to Estonia from Malaysia and I felt so scared for mm. my children. I felt so scared that it was, it was painful because I was worried that what if the next morning, what if this night will not end peacefully? Mm-hmm. Until one moment I realized that there is no guarantee about tomorrow. And the only thing that I can feel is the present moment. That's when you refocus your attention from things which actually distract to you, to things that matter. That in this present moment, I have me and my children and the blue sky and the peace. And can't I enjoy this moment, even, especially that I know that this is so fragile. So mm-hmm. this is the essence of the practice of gratitude. Very often when we do it, we become, we start doing it on autopilot and it becomes this motion, this ritual, this thing that we do without even putting the, the true essence into that experience. And it stops bringing results. And what happens over time is that you are stuck. You're in the dead end. You think I have all my life is sorted out. I do all the right things. I do all the right practices. Why am I not feeling what I'm supposed to feel? So true. Because very often behind the emotions, we forget the essence. Right. You know, I I practice gratitude with the girls their whole entire life. We have gratitude journals. And 
they, you know, it's like a library when they were little, even before they could write, they would draw stick figures. And, but I, I knew how important that was, especially with children being grateful instead of just distaker, right? Like a, not being a giver and a, and a gratitude having that, but you know, it's like we wake up and it is the feeling like, what was that feeling from yesterday? What was your gratitude moment or switching it up and not becoming a robot, like you're saying, but you gave me more, like more depth to that because it's so true. It becomes this ritual and, you know, we could, you know, we're since, you know, they, one of them drives to school now, but you know, their whole life we would get in the car and we would do our affirmations and, you know, they'd be the same ones. And I said, no, we need to switch it up. It's like, we're just a recording, a robot that has no meaning, you know, the ritual is a ritual. Yeah. We're doing it, but you know, it's like, yeah, I love that. And we're also, there was another part of what I was reading was the positivity. Like when you were, you talk about positivity and, you know, I always, you know, me and my teachings, you know, like I'm so alert to words that are negative and I'm always trying to like, you know, replace, you know, let's think of the words you speak, the thoughts you think, you know, so take me down that path. <laughs> I think that it has its roots in NLP and I, to, to some degree, actually, I subscribe to that as well, but that's, there are nuances. We always have to see the essence of things. And then I think it becomes a little bit easier to navigate this whole thing. If you have certain uh, patterns which can have destructive uh, influence in your life, then it's good to replace the negativity with positivity. For example, I don't like the idea of sacrifice and hard work for success. I think it's a really horrible set of beliefs. I prefer to replace hard work with determination or passion, mm. right? Or, or staying uh, committed to something. So this is, this, this has the element of that NLP, you know, choose what you want to believe in. So there is space for that. Yet we sometimes go so far in that direction that we prohibit or taboo or kind of demonize everything which is uh, which is not with a plus sign, which is not positive. And again, positive and negative is a, is a, is a subjective thing or subjective, uh, in a way, uh, approach to that. Um, Susan David, uh, she's she's a TED speaker and uh, and a psychologist. She has this wonderful idea. She says, "Don't judge your." Emotions as positive or negative. And I would say also thoughts and war and, and events. They mm-hmm. just objectively, they just are. Right. And your circumstances, the moment we start giving them plus or minus, you know, positive, negative, good, bad, there's judgment to that. We don't want bad, we want good. So say shame or fear or anger. Is it positive? Is it negative? Is it bad? So it actually, it just is. There are cases where anger is good. I was once, I had a really close friend who, who I suspect, and it's not my medical diagnosis, had a very strong case of narcissism and, and, and was very manipulative. I was suffering and I felt guilty because she, she, she was that type of, you know, vulnerable narcissist who actually was massively loved by everyone. And I felt guilty. Uh, and uh, but, but uh, for for not enjoying being with her, she was my close friend. For not being able to figure it out, and uh, a year passed, and a whole lot of uh, uh, the process of me trying to understand what had happened. Until one day, I was very angry with her, and it felt like liberation. Oh, huh. and in that moment, anger was actually liberating, and it, it lifted me out of my deep dark hole right. or fear. 
when I go on stage and I don't feel fear, I usually don't perform very well. For me, it's that emotion that puts me in, in the mm -hmm. right state. So it's really tempting. But these, these examples are probably a little bit uh, easier. Pain of losing someone dear to you. It is a painful emotion. Is it bad? Is it negative? Or is it just your natural expression? And something to remind you that you had something so meaningful in your life. Right. And maybe a reminder to, to value what meaning you still have left in your life. So the problem is not per se in the idea of replacing pain with pleasure or so-called negativity with positivity. But in doing just that and not seeing the, the different circumstances. So if it's your pattern, of course, replace it because patterns probably damage your life. But if it is an experience you're having right now, then please, for God's sake, don't. Because you're going to deprive yourself of a human experience, which probably can be enriching, illuminating, transforming, helping you get to know yourself better. You know, just the way I know you're just a natural writer and it flows through you and your words and your, I mean, it's just beautiful. You're definitely doing what you're, you're, per, you're doing your purpose. But we, when you're talking about, we're, we're coming to the end, but I want to ask you about emotions because I've been talking about emotions lately. And, you know, when you, you were explaining something and I'm drawing a blank on what it was, but you were just, it's just, I think the mastery of your emotions or like mastering them. Is that yeah. ring a bell? It's, so it's interesting. My book is divided into two parts. And then the first half of the book, I actually try to share the skills that you will need for the second half of the book which is right. a deep dive. <laughs> and I think that uh, the, the one skill that is absolutely fundamental for any kind of transformation is awareness. That's from which I start. And then the other skill, which I think we are missing, and it's important not just for transformation, but for life in general, is, is uh, being able to deal with your emotions. I call it emotional literacy or emotional ABC depending on, <laughs> depending on the audience. <laughs> but basically, right. It's understanding how to, handle your emotions or how to process them. Because this is something which is part of human experience. We have emotions for a reason. And unfortunately, from very early age, we're indoctrinated to judge them and to uh, suppress certain emotions and to be okay with other emotions and not to, not to go too far into a third type of emotions. It's really restrictive. We are told from very early age, don't yell, don't be angry, don't be sad, don't cry. When we grow up, we also told, we're told, why are you sad? First of all, problems. Oh, think of the people who have less than you. You're blessed. Be grateful. <laughs> I am right. deliberately actually using somewhat, yeah. <laughs> somewhat painful words. But we are told how we are not supposed to feel. We are told how we are supposed to feel. And actually, even how we are supposed to feel. Oh, feel blissful, feel love, feel joy, but not too much because otherwise it's euphoria and don't chase happiness. Right. It's really interesting that we keep being told how not to feel and the very, very little slither which we are allowed to feel. And But the, the reality of life is that we have the whole range of emotions and they all come for a reason. So in my book, I, uh, I compare our emotional, emotional expression with the way our body has sensations, physical sensations. So our body has physical sensations because that's our body's language 
to draw our attention to certain parts of our body. Let's take pain because pain is the one which we have biggest problems with. When you touch a hot surface, you feel burning sensation because you need to remove your hand from the hot surface. If you cut your finger, you feel the sensation because you need to pay attention and maybe dress the wound so that it heals. Our body feels physical pain because that draws our attention to those parts of our body which require our attention and healing and maybe some kind of fixing in some way. Mm -hmm. So people who are born without the ability to feel pain don't survive to adulthood because their bodies just break and they die. So our emotions and emotional pain specifically are given to us for the same reason. When you feel discomfort, when you feel pain, it's, I do not know, your emotional body's way to draw your attention to those parts of your life which require your attention and healing. So when you feel angry, yes, maybe it's not a savory emotion, but it's also a signal for you to slow down and ask yourself, what is going on? What is this feeling telling me? about my values, about my essence, about my wants, my needs, my life. And the one huge mistake that a lot of us are making is that we, we are afraid of certain emotions. We suppress them because we think that being true to your emotion means being erratic, being angry, being all those things that, which is not okay to be. And we are forgetting that there is a space between you feeling an emotion and you making a decision and the next step. Or you can make that space. You can create that space. You can feel angry and choose to still act with compassion or be just. You can feel sad or upset or annoyed and choose to be, you know, civil. To be, uh, you know, not to be a nuisance to people if you don't want to be. We are allowed to feel all of our emotions, and we still have a choice to act out of our values rather out of what we are feeling. Now, if we suppress our emotions, very often what happens, and I talk about that in my book at length, is that emotions, they don't disappear. If your head is hurting and you pop painkillers, whatever causes your headache is not going to go away. You're just not going to notice it. Right. The same with emotions, just because you suppress them, you ignore them, you try to replace them, you, you shove them away, they're not going to disappear. They're going to stay and they're going to probably increase in intensity. And sooner or later in psychology, there's such a thing as emotional leakage or, you know, when the emotions leak out, when you least <laughs> need them to leak out, passive aggressive behavior is a very right. example of emotional leakage. Or they explode when you least expect them. You were asking me about my uh, divorce. I was feeling discontent in my marriage for years, but I didn't dare to face that dragon. By the time when I had to face it, it was, it was so painful. I couldn't, I couldn't handle that anymore. And it ended up in separation. Maybe if I had faced it earlier, I wouldn't have, you know, it, the, the decision mm. or the wouldn't have been so explosive. Right. That's a good example that we can all relate to. Oh, Christina, thank you for your beautiful book that you are going to be able to share with the world. What would be a piece of advice that you're, you would give to your younger self? Before? Oh, I wouldn't. That's what I want to know. Tell me. 
Nothing. I wouldn't, I wouldn't give because if I haven't, I mean, of course, I, sometimes I wish I ran away from certain people, but I, if I haven't had my, my bumps and my scratches, I wouldn't have been here. Yes. Maybe I would have been in a better place. I do not know, but I'm here and I'm thankful for that journey. Right. Yeah. I love that. What about with your children as like, as being a mom, what is your main like intention with, with that as they grow? I want them to, to be at peace with how they are. Of course, I also want them to become better in certain skills. <laughs> but I really, and, and sometimes I am nagging also with certain discipline questions, but fundamentally I'd like them to, to feel at peace with however they express themselves and know that I'm going to love them and I'm there for them. Yes, I love that. So we can find you, Christina Mand, on all the social media. My, my handles are Christina Mand, and because I'm from Estonia, it's with a K. <laughs> okay. Christina with a K, yeah. Right. And then um, your book on Amazon, and it's out now, right? It's out now. It's on Amazon. It's in uh, uh, in the bookshops. It's even in the airports. So it's everywhere. <laughs> oh, I can't wait to see it. We're going to Italy in a couple of days. So I'll be at the airport. I'll oh, look for good. it. Yes. That's really um, good. What a good feeling for you to walk by an airport and look in there and say, it's for your book, I bet. What a feeling, I, huh? I have to fly for two years for that. I'm still in Europe, but uh, I'm going to do that for my book tour. And uh, I we have a book, my book in, in the shop in Estonia. That's been pleasant. I've been oh. making little trips there and, <laughs> and <laughs> looking at my book there. Oh, I love it. Oh, what a good feeling. Oh, so proud of you. And it's so nice to meet you and Thank have you. fun on your book tour. I'll attempt. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Uncover Your Magic podcast today. If you are inspired by what you heard today, please share it with a friend. And if you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this show on your favorite podcast player. If you would like to connect with me with any questions, comments, or feedback, please contact me at the Uncover Your Magic website. Thank you so much for listening. And don't forget, always look for the magic.